Let's, as we approach God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking God's blessing upon our time. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that your spirit would be with us, illuminating our minds and softening our hearts, that we might see all that you have for us in your word. Lord, we are your children, and we want to receive the word that you have prepared for us. I pray that you would help us to put away all sin and filthiness, and to receive with meekness the implanted word. We ask this so that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to please open your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And you'll find that if uh, you don't have your own copy, you can use the Pew Bible that's in front of you and turn to page 1046. 1046, where Luke 21 is found. Well, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've no doubt been a part of conversations surrounding uh, some hype around the end times. You've heard talk about wondering if we are in the last days or if things are beginning to heighten towards the return of Christ or towards the tribulation. Uh, in fact, you may have even had the experience I've had of having unbeliever, unbelieving neighbors ask you if the things that are going on in the world today are found in the Bible. Because they've heard or read on the internet somewhere that the Bible prophesied some things about the, what is going to come and uh, they're curious. People are curious what is going to happen, especially as things surface and come into the news and, and happen in our lives that seem to be unprecedented. These things, uh, whether it's something a government has done or whether it's a natural disaster, that seem to be at a scale that we haven't seen before and people begin to ask, are we in the end of days? Are these part of the apocalyptic signs of the end of the age? Our passage before us is going to help us answer some of these questions and curiosities. I say some because I won't be able to answer all of our questions and curiosities, but it is the section of Luke's gospel that is often called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. This is because it is a discourse, it is a speech given by Jesus on the Mount, known as the Mount of Olives, or as Luke 21, 37 says, the Mount called Olivet. And this is a speech that is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is the second longest teaching by Jesus, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. However, it is Jesus' longest statement on eschatology. Eschatology, the big, big fancy words, it simply means the study of the end times, the study of last things. This is Jesus' longest, most definitive statement on what will come in the end. Through this discourse, Jesus functions like a prophet, proclaiming what is going to come in the future. In the Gospel of Luke, this discourse covers 33 verses. It's not short. It just goes from verse 5. The discourse goes all the way to verse 36. We're going to look all the way to the end of the chapter. And... But as we look at this section of scripture, we need to harmonize it with what is found in the other uh, synoptic gospels. And I believe this is the case for however you, whichever book you find yourself in, as you look at this passage, you need to try to be able to piece it together with what is said in the other gospels. Now each author, Matthew and Mark and Luke, each compose their text for a specific purpose. And we need to try to see it in that light. But as we try to understand all of the details and understand how all the puzzle pieces fit together, we've got to survey all of the versions of this Olivet Discourse. Because 
We don't believe that there are just three different versions that came out of people's heads. We believe this is one event, that Jesus actually taught this to his disciples. The words came out of his mouth and they got recorded by different witnesses. And so therefore they picked up different aspects of that speech, but they all harmonized together. They are all part of one event and one teaching. But because we are going through the gospel of Luke, Luke will be our base of operations and we will then then branch out into the other synoptic gospels as needed. But let's begin. We're going to read this morning our text from verse 5 through verse 38 so we can get this flow of understanding Jesus' teaching here. So follow along as I read, beginning in Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents, and brothers, and relatives, and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let, the, let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these, day, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he cause it to bless all of our hearts. Well, from 
the title of today's message, the fact that there's a part one on it, you know that we're going to be covering this for a couple of weeks. It's a long section of scripture and there are some difficult pieces for us to untangle. But let me map out where we're going today. And so as, today we're going to be introducing this discourse, this speech, this section by Jesus. And as we do so, I will ans- ask and answer three questions. We're going to ask and answer three questions that will help us to correctly understand Jesus' crucial teaching on the end times. Ask and answer three questions. Let's begin by asking the first question. What precipitated this speech? What precipitated, what caused Jesus to deliver this Olivet Discourse? Did Jesus just have a burden on his heart that he just wanted to get off and just dump on the disciples? Was there, or was there more context than that? And to answer this question, we need to begin to look at these verses in Luke, beginning in verse 5. So look at it with me, verse 5. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offering. They, there were some that were speaking of the temple. Kind of seems like an odd thing to put into uh, the text here. But Matthew gives us a little bit more context to say that Jesus had just left the temple. He exited the temple. And as they're exiting the temple, the disciples begin to talk. And he uh, begins to, uh, the, the disciples are talking about the temple as they're going away. In particular, Luke says that they were highlighting the beautiful adornment of the temple. You'll notice that there in verse 5. How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. This temple was truly ornate. Their wonder and awe at Herod's temple was not unfounded. It was indeed a beautiful structure. The temple that they're speaking of here is what is known as the second temple. In biblical studies, there's a first temple, there's a second temple. The first temple, you'll remember, was constructed by David's son, Solomon. Solomon uh, built this temple. Israel worshipped there for a number of years. But it was then destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. When they destroyed Jerusalem and they took the Jews into captivity. And so, because the temple was destroyed, when they returned from exile, there was a need to rebuild the temple. And this project was begun by a man named Zerubbabel. And when they completed it, there was great rejoicing. They finally had the temple back. But there was also great weeping. Because there were some there that had seen Solomon's temple. And they looked at this, what seemed like kind of a a pitiful little structure. And they were weeping because this, the second temple, resembled nothing like the original. Nothing like Solomon's temple. In fact, it says in Ezra chapter 3 that the rejoicing on that day and the weeping was so mixed that people couldn't tell them apart. You kind of hear something like, are people crying or are they rejoicing? And it was a mix between the two. Well then, in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the 400 silent years, simply because God was not revealing anything through the prophets, but there was history going on, Herod the Great became king over Israel. And he set about doing some great building projects throughout all the land of Israel. If you go to Israel, much of what you'll see is you're going to see a bunch of uh, building projects of Herod the Great and what is left of them because he went on a building spree. It's part of his legacy. But as a leader, he wanted to make all these things for himself and make himself look great, but he also knew that he needed to appease the people. And so he poured a lot of money into the temple. He gave that temple a major upgrade so that the temple that now exists in Jesus' day, not the time of Zerubbabel when it was first rebuilt, but the time in Jesus' day, it was a beautiful structure. It was known to be one of the most beautiful buildings in all of the known world at that time. He doubled the size of the temple complex. There's the temple proper that has received the specific dimensions from God himself, but all around there were other buildings and there was a, a greater like a patio area that surrounded the temple known as the temple complex, all built upon this foundation known as the temple mount. And Herod doubled that size. 
It was built with uh, grand white stone. Uh, I've got a picture for you of some of what, a, uh, a model of what it could have looked like. You can see that large foundation structure, that big square, is known as the Temple Mount. And then the building in the middle of that is the Temple Proper. There's other porticos and whatnot that surround the temple area. But it is a massive structure, all built with this white Jerusalem stone. And again, he built up the temple and decorated it with much gold so that when the sun rose over the east, it reflected off of the temple and just shone in magnificent glory. It was, uh, there's another picture here, another model, a close, closer up picture of the model where you see the, the outer court, the court of the women, and then into uh, the court of the men, and then into the temple building proper. Now this, that temple is obviously no longer standing today, but some parts of the temple mount, that large foundation is still, uh, still remains from the time of Herod. I've got another picture um, that shows a uh, a part of that Temple Mount. This is the uh, southwestern corner of that Temple Mount. And uh, it's too far away for you to see, but there's larger stones that are on the lower part. There's some smaller stones in the upper part. The bigger stones that are comprise the lower half of that wall are, are stones from the time of Herod, are times from the first century. The upper part was then rebuilt in, in later centuries, but there's still some of those... Herodian stones that are there around Jerusalem. In fact, uh, they say that there's enough left over Herodian stones all over Jerusalem to be able to rebuild the whole temple uh, uh, complex from the first century. There's so much that's still left around, although in rubble now. So this, can, this again, this just gives us a, uh, a sense of its magnitude um, but these stones, to just kind of hone in, you, you'll notice in Luke, Luke 21.5, they talk about the noble stones that, they, that this temple was built with. Now again, we don't have any of the temple proper, uh, the stones there, but we have leftover, we have some evidences still there in the land today of the, the stones that filled out just the foundation. And these are enough to marvel at. Another picture here, this is a uh, close-up. This is just a, a close-up of where two of the stones meet that were part of this construction wall, this, these, these large wall. These stones were cut and fitted on site with first century hand tools. They, to this day, they still fit snugly together so that you can't even put a razor blade between them. But what makes this remarkable is not just how well they were fitted together, but the fact that how large these stones were. You can go to the next picture. The longest stone that we've found in what we can see of the structure, uh, there, if you can see, there's a white box kind of outlining this, the length of this stone. This is a portion of the wall known as Robinson's Arch. It would have pulled, uh, come out and provided a walkway for people to enter up onto the temple. And that stone uh, outlined there is about 45 and a half feet long. There's another picture of it, the next one. This is, if you can see, there's a guy down there at the base. Um, this is before they had fully excavated the wall that you saw previously uh, when they began uh, pulling this away. But you can see a man standing there and then how large this stone is that's there above his head. So this is the longest stone we've found in the Temple Mount, but there's, by mass, there's even a larger stone that they've, they've found to the north of, of this that uh, is estimated to weigh 570 tons. It's 43 and a half feet long, 10, uh, about 10 feet tall, and an estimated 13 to 15 feet deep. And you can go to the next picture to show that. This is, you can go inside an underground hallway to be able to see it. And again, the white outline is there to get you a sense of its, of its magnitude and size. And again, these are just the stones found at the base of the Temple Mount, not to mention the stones that actually comprise the temple itself. And we can only guess at some of the ornamentation, the, the extra things that were there upon the temple that helped to decorate it and make it beautiful. 
you know, you can go to the next picture, just another model of what this temple would have looked like. Some of the gold that was on the outside. There was other decorations that were there as you walked up to the doors and everything else. But here's the question. Why, here in Luke 21.5, are the disciples going on an architectural tour? <laughs> Why are they walking around going, hey, Jesus, look at the, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, you got to think about it. This, these are Jews. The, the temple was the pride of the nation. This is a building that is not new to them. This is one that they would have known about from the time that they could remember anything they knew about the temple. They saw it all of the time. Not to mention just the, the, the years of Jesus' ministry. But the reason that they are pointing to the temple is because of something that Jesus said right before they left the temple. And for this, we need to turn to Matthew chapter 23. So I invite you to turn there, Matthew 23, to get, a, to get these remarks of Jesus. Matthew 23 records what's known as the woes. Jesus spoke woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the leadership of Israel. Last week, we looked at Luke's version of this, in which there was uh, an abbreviated uh, condemnation of the scribes and thus representing the leadership of Israel. But here in Matthew 23, it's an extended uh, passage in which he denounces their immorality, their wicked hypocrisy, and that they are morally bankrupt. But what we need to look at is how Jesus ends this, how he ends chapter 23, beginning in verse 37. This is a statement that Luke does not record in his account. But here, it, Jesus is speaking, and it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here in this text, Jesus laments the unbelief of Israel. He's crying out with with tears, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I wanted to gather you together. I wanted to, to save you in this way, but you were not willing to have me. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus called this my house. But here he calls it your house. What house is he talking about? He's talking about the temple. He's here in the temple. He's talking about Israel, and he says, your house is left to you desolate. Yes, the nation as a whole, but represented by the house, the building that represented, that stood at the center of Israel, that was the temple. It would be left desolate, or it would become a desolation. Now this would be no doubt hard for the disciples to hear. They thought that they were on the ascendancy. They thought Jesus' ministry was continuing to surge and that he was going to ultimately win out. They were still waiting for a political Messiah. And yes, the Old Testament gives lots of predictions of how the Messiah was going to vanquish uh, Israel's enemies, was going to help save Israel from their enemies. And so there was a right expectation there. But obviously they did not understand the sequence. They did not know that the cross came before the crown. And most fundamentally, they did not realize that they needed to spiritually change. They needed to spiritually repent in order to accept the Messiah. And they refused to do so. Israel refused to do so. Obviously the disciples had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they did not understand his plan. They did not understand exactly the sequence of everything. And so here they think that they're in Jerusalem. Jesus just like denounced the leadership, the corrupt leadership. He has, as we've seen, he took control of the Temple Mount, that whole temple area. Mark says that he didn't allow anyone to cross through that area apart from his permission. Jesus seems like he's in total control and he's going to clean house. 
But here Jesus laments and says that this house will be left desolate. But the reason that they had a difficulty understanding why Jesus would, would say that the temple was, was going to be a desolation, was going to be left desolate, is because of some of the other Old Testament prophecies. And, and one of those I want you to see in Malachi chapter 3. So go to the last book of the Old Testament. So you're in Matthew, just go back one book to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, a messianic prophecy, one that's already been alluded to in Jesus' ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so you can understand why it's on their minds. But look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner's a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be like will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Based upon this text, I believe the disciples thought that Jesus came in to control the temple. He's the Messiah. John the Baptist, the messenger who was supposed to go before, already came before, fulfilling this. And so they thought he's coming in and he's going to go into his temple and he's going to refine Israel and then Israel's going to be able to offer pleasing offerings to the Lord. They thought this was part of his campaign to exalt Israel and to conquer her enemies. And so therefore they thought, listen Jesus, you're this, you're this Messiah. You've come into your temple. You've now taken control. Why is this temple going to be a desolation? And this explains why back in Matthew, 23 ends with talking about the desolation. 24 verse 1, the next verse, is the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. Where they walk out and begin to point out the buildings. They say, but Jesus, look, it's beautiful. Do you see how ornately this is? Do you see the grandeur of this building? Let's turn back to Luke chapter 21. Again, we're looking at what precipitated this Olivet Discourse. What caused Jesus to go into this long speech about what's to come. And first, we see that in verse, in Luke particularly, that they're talking about the temple. They're pointing it out, as we see from the other gospel writers. And then here in verse 6, Jesus responds. It says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left to hear one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says the temple is going to be destroyed. This great temple that you're looking at, disciples... Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And why is this? Why does Jesus make this prediction? Why does the temple need to come down? It's because they miss the Messiah. It's because they refuse to trust and to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's look back two chapters to 19, Luke 19. We saw this a couple months ago. Luke 19, verse 41. This is after the triumphal entry, right before he enters in and cleanses the temple. It says in verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not know that they had been visited by God Most High. They did not recognize, they did not realize, they refused to believe in 
the heaven sent, the spirit anointed Messiah. And so therefore judgment would come. As John says in John 1, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And so Jesus weeps. Now going back to chapter 21, in his words, this prophecy that not one stone will be left upon another was fulfilled perfectly. Jesus predicted perfectly what would happen. And it came about in 70 AD when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and the temple with it. Now we're going to look at this event more in depth next week. But you can know for certain that Jesus' prophecy was completely fulfilled. He is a true prophet. Now even though... There are stones of the temple mount still standing. The temple itself was totally demolished in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. And even today, we can see the stones that were pulled down. In fact, I want to show you a picture I've already shown you. And uh, at the base of this wall, crumpled kind of in the middle to the left of the picture, is, a, is crumpled stone. Those are stones that they excavated down to and found these stones, Herodian stones from the first century resting upon a first century street. You can go to the next picture and here's a different view of it. At the base of the wall you can see the street that you're standing upon as the picture is taken. Kind of the curb on the right riding down along that would have, those would have been marketplaces, little booths or people selling things as you walk down the street in the shadow of the temple. But these are the stones on the left there, are the stones that were pulled down by the Roman army in the first century in 70 AD to destroy the temple. These are a living testimony to the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. The excavators uh, excavated this in the 90, 1990s and they were left there in a pile, as it were, to show where they, where they landed and came to rest in the first century. Now it's because of this devastating prediction that Jesus gives that the disciples asked for clarity. And so in Luke 21 verse 7, it says, They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Mark 13 tells us that there were particularly four disciples that came up to Jesus to ask these questions. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were asking these clarifying questions. I believe then he answered so that all the disciples could hear. We're going to look at these questions more in depth the next week, but you can see here just briefly that there's two main questions, a when question and a what question. When will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Matthew records a little more detail. He says, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus uses the opportunity of the disciples asking these questions for him to then launch into what we have and know as the Olivet Discourse. And so it was Jesus himself that prompted the disciples' curiosity that then brought about this great teaching and we're thankful that we have it. So that answers the first question. What precipitated the Olivet Discourse? It was Jesus' own prophecy that then caused the disciples to ask the question that then brought about the teaching. But let's go on and look at the second question. How do we go about understanding the Olivet Discourse? And here I just want to talk in broad strokes for a moment. Because there's different interpretive methods for how we understand this passage of Scripture. But they, we can, for our purposes, I'm just going to group them into two categories for us. There's either a, a futurist way to understand this text, or there's a preterist way to understand this text. To say futurist, we mean that it's a method of interpretation that sees the events of this chapter as largely future from our vantage point. That they haven't taken place yet, they are still to come. Now everyone agrees that when Jesus spoke these words, what he was speaking about was still future. He wasn't speaking about anything in the history to him. He was speaking about things that were still future to him. But the question is... Uh, what is still future for us today? And the futurist interpretation insists that most of what is described in the Olivet Discourse still lies in the future. 
An example of a Bible teacher who interprets this futuristically would be Pastor John MacArthur. But there's another way to approach this, and that is known as the preterist interpretation. And this teaches that most, if not all, of what happened in this, or is presented in this chapter, took place surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That event that I've already spoken to you about, they would say that this, this chapter and all that Jesus says here is talking in prophetic and poetic language of what would eventually take place in 70 AD. So therefore, it is history to us, although future to Jesus. An example of a Bible teacher who interprets this, the Olivet Discourse from a preterist perspective was Dr. R.C. Sproul. Now, as you can tell, these interpretive methods differ drastically. And so how do we choose? Do we just roll a dice? Do we flip a coin? Well, no, we know we can't do that. We must be driven by Scripture. We approach every passage of Scripture the same way. We bring to it what we call our hermeneutic, which a hermeneutic is our way that we approach the Scripture, the science, the, the, the approach that we have for interpreting the Bible. And getting our hermeneutic right is hugely important. What is the goal of hermeneutics? What is the goal of interpreting the Bible? Well, it's to rightly divide it, right? It's to rightly understand what was written for us. We want to determine what was the original author's intent. What did Luke mean by this? But obviously, even further back than that, what did Jesus mean when he spoke these words? We want to know Jesus' intention in speaking these things. And that goes for any of the biblical authors. What were they trying to communicate? What was God trying to communicate through this human author? We want the voice of the biblical author to shine through. That is what we seek to do. And how do we do that? We do it through a hermeneutic that we call a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. Literal simply means that we take the straightforward reading of the text. By literal, we don't mean that it should be taken in a woodenly literal. Uh, this hermeneutic allows for there to be metaphors, for there, there to be illustrations, analogies. To say that... Uh, God has an outstretched arm and he's mighty to save doesn't mean that he actually literally has an arm. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't have those things. And so a hermeneutic needs to be able to account for such language. But generally, we take the text at face value. We're not looking for a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning. But it's also historical. It's a literal historical hermeneutic. And that means, again, that we want to see what would the original audience have understood Think of this letter that Luke wrote and it, and it lands at a church in the first century. How would they have understood what he wrote? How would the author or speaker, uh, how would they have understood what they're referencing? But thirdly, it's grammatical and that means we study the very words. We're not just talking about the general ideas that are found in the text. But we believe the specific words are important because every word is inspired and therefore we want to see that every word is critical for our understanding. And so we study syntax, we study grammar, how they're put together. What is the subject of the sentence? What is the main verb? What is the verb trying to tell us? These details matter. Now if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that the way that we approach the scriptures from this pulpit every week is through that vein of trying to understand what the Bible says and what it means. But it's important that we do exegesis, which means to draw out of the word of God what is there, not what is called eisegesis, in which we put into the text what we want to be there. And this, and, and, and believers of all stripes of all sorts of theological persuasions can be guilty of this, where we have a certain theology and we put our system, our theology, into the text. And we can't do that. We don't want our experience to be put into the text. We don't want our theology, we don't want our biases to distort our view of the Bible. We want to hear the word of God. We want God's voice to come through. And so as we come here to Luke 21, and we study this large text, it's important to note that both futurists and preterists would agree of these principles of interpretation. They both respect God's word. They both believe that it's, that it's wholly inspired and believe you should let the text speak for itself. And so in principle, both have the same starting place, but obviously they arrive at different conclusions. And so what approach will we take as we go through this? Or rather, what approach do I believe is most faithful to this text? Well, you can probably deduce, even from the title of the message, that I believe that this has to do with the end times. It has to do with a future to us. Now, 
I think when we take all of these passages together, both what we have in Luke, what we have in Matthew, what we have in Mark, we can see the majority, not all, but the majority of the Olivet Discourse concerns things surrounding Jesus' second coming, things that are still future for us. With that said, there is a very key and important historical section that for us took place already in the past, and we'll see that as we go through the text. And you may ask, well, how did you come to those conclusions that this is future and not history? How did you determine that some are historical events and some are still future un, uh, events that haven't happened yet? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to hear my rationale as we make the case going through the text verse by verse. Because it's not made from one verse, it's made from looking at the, the passage as a whole. We want the Bible to speak for itself. But let's thirdly and finally this morning ask the, the final question. That is, why do we need to study the Olivet Discourse today? You go, okay, that's great. This is for all those theology nerds that love to squabble about eschatology and theology and all of that. I just want to get on with my Christian life. Thank you very much. And we need to recognize there's, all of us are kind of in different places. Some of you, this Coming to this is red meat, and you're already salivating over all the discussions and all the nuances of prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature, and you're excited about it, figuring out the finer points of eschatology, and that's great. Others of you may not have such interest in these things as much. You're more or practically oriented of the Christian life. You may even see these theological debates as a little bit pointless. And it's a little confusing, so you just try to avoid it altogether. But still others of you may really want to know what the God's Word says, but the fact that there's, even as I've mentioned, solid Bible teachers on both sides of the interpretive aisle, you can kind of just throw your hands up in despair and go, well, who am I? How am I going to figure this out? It's dizzying to know who to follow, who to read. And you just kind of go, if there's respected teachers on both sides, then how can I ever discern the truth? If they can't come to a consensus, then what hope do I have of understanding what's going on? But we need to remember, as we now approach this text, that the truth of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 applies to this passage as much as it applies to every passage. And that is, all scripture is breathed out by God and is, what is it? Profitable. It's profitable. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this includes the Olivet Discourse. This passage of scripture is important for us. It's profitable for us. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. So that you and I may be equipped, complete for every good work. So we can live our Christian lives with faithfulness. So we need Jesus' teaching here. This is part of the inspired, breathed out word of God. But why? why? What does this passage do for us? How does it help us? I want to suggest a few reasons here why we in the 21st century need Jesus' words here. First, in studying the Olivet Discourse, we gain an understanding of the destiny of the world. Three reasons this is helpful. The first is that we gain an understanding of the destiny of the world. As I said, as I began, people are interested in knowing the future. Where is this world headed? Are there, who are the winners? Who are the losers? Jesus' words helps us, help us to know what will take place. We can have confidence about where history is headed. Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant, friends. He wants us to be informed. That's why he spent so much time on this. And so we need to listen to our Savior, listen to what he says, and we need to take it to heart. But there's a second reason we need it, not just to understand, not just to have the knowledge about the future, but secondly, we need this because in it we are exhorted to live faithfully. In this text, we are exhorted to live faithfully. Because you see, knowing where history is headed, knowing how it's going to end, sets our priorities. When we know the end game, we know how it's all going to sort out, it clarifies us in the present of how we're supposed to live. It reminds us of what's most important. You hear the term, uh, the phrase all over today about being on the right side of history. 
That's something that each one of us at one level want to be. We want to be on the winning side. And going to the scriptures and going to what our Savior says about what the end of days will be like is helpful for us to know what is the right side of history. Jesus says in verse 34 of this passage that we need to be watchful. We need to be alert. We can't allow the things of this life to weigh us down, to be distracted, to be, to be anxious, to be discouraged, and we're just only looking on the horizontal. But we need to look with eternity in view. We need to see how, how this is all going to end and that this age will end and there's something beyond it. And it helps us to clarify. It helps us to prioritize our hearts of what's most important. We're reminded that our time is short. This is not all there is. There's something more. Jesus is coming back. And he's gonna, when he does, it's going to surprise the world. And Jesus says it's going to come like a trap instantly and people are not going to be prepared. And so we need to be prepared. His return is imminent. There's an urgency in how we live now and how we share the gospel. Jesus is coming back, as this passage makes clear, and so knowing him matters. Right now it may seem that lots of other things matter. This world, the headlines, the, 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 the movers and shakers in this world might try to tell you and tell us what's most important and who we should listen to. The world values power, autonomy, freedom, pleasure, but there is nothing more important than knowing Jesus Christ. Church, we can't be distracted by the pleasures and the cares of this life. We need to be faithful with what is in front of us. But we can't get lulled into thinking that this is all there is. We have an eternity before us. We must live like it. There's a third and final reason that we need this text. And that's because in studying this text, we are encouraged to long for Christ himself. In studying this text, we are encouraged to long for Christ himself. Our hope is in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Jesus wins in the end we are optimistic about where history is headed and about who will win in the final day. We know that we stand with Christ. We're not just longing for certain results to change. We're not just longing for a better world. We're longing for Jesus Christ to see him face to face. And friends, that is what we must direct our hearts to. We need to make sure that our hope is in Christ himself because this is the hope of the church and this is what will keep us steadfast, immovable. This is what will keep us enduring until the end. This is the hope that purifies us. I want to finish by just looking at two passages. First, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Looking at our, the, the hope of the church. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3. John writes this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, this is the hope of the church, that we will be transformed to be like Christ. We are being made like him now, but we know that it's not yet complete. There is still a lot of work for God to do in each one of us, but we have the hope that on that day when we see him, the change will be complete and we will be like him. We'll be purified so that we can enjoy him completely without the hindrance of sin. And so that hope purifies us and we keep our eyes set on that goal. There's another passage that talks about how this hope is our blessed hope. And we'll find this in Titus chapter 2. Flip back a couple books, a few books to Titus chapter 2. And we'll finish with this. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. Paul writes this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Look at it, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, in this we see that the grace of God has appeared for us and he has transformed us. We have renounced the ungodly ways of living. We are now self-controlled, living sober lives and we're waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This Savior, this God and Savior who has redeemed us so that we might live in the here and now zealous for good works. We're not sitting around in a bunker somewhere waiting for Jesus to come back. We are busy about his work as we wait with an a, a, a unhappy hope. No. We're not grumpy as we wait. We have a blessed hope. A blessed hope that Jesus is coming back to come and to, to redeem his own. To redeem us, to purify us. And so church, keep your eyes set on this hope as we wait. And we'll, our passage will help us to do this. But let me just say here this, this morning as I close, if you're here today and you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, that you don't have this hope, that you live your life thinking that what is right in front of you is all that there is, then I have news for you and that is that after death there comes judgment. That we must all face our creator there's no way that we can avoid it other than trusting in Jesus Christ by placing our faith in him, by surrendering to his lordship and trusting in his work upon the cross. We will be saved from that judgment and we will experience what we've looked at this morning and that is the radical transformation that he has promised to his children. If you do not have that peace of knowing hope of what lies beyond the grave. I encourage you to talk to someone here today before you leave. We want to help you to have that joyful hope that goes beyond death. May we all grow in our hope and our holiness as we await his return. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that it gives. And we look forward to going in detail into Jesus' words in Luke 21. I pray as we embark on this, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us open minds, that you would help us to understand all that Jesus has said, that we might live more faithfully here and now. Father, help us as a church to live alert, to live watchful, that we might be busy about good works while we wait joyfully for our Savior's return. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, go forth in the joy of the Lord and the hope that you will see him soon. You're dismissed.